Well, I invite you, if you'd like, to turn to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus 24, I was just remarking uh, to a brother this evening, he asked how Exodus is going. <laughs> well, it's more than I bargained for in <laughs> starting it. Definitely challenging parts, case laws, etc. We're about ready to get into some fun stuff regarding the building of the tabernacle and all that symbolism, how it points to the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. And uh, this evening, as we come to Exodus 24, fascinating chapter. Uh, <laughs> I wish we had more time uh, to look at uh, things, but we're going to look at a few key highlights of it and uh, see what this uh, covenant confirmation ceremony is all about. Um, how about we uh, pause for a moment of prayer and then we'll read it and, and take a look at the first 11 verses. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It's so rich. Uh, incredible truths embedded in uh, the lives of the Israelites, embedded in your word thousands of years ago that are unfolded and teased out when Jesus comes and made clear. And so we thank you that on this side of the cross, 2,000 years after Jesus has come and died and been resurrected and ascended, we can marvel at these truths. And we pray that you would not only encourage our hearts with how incredible you are as our God, but that you'd also uh, leave us with a sense of uh, joy and delight and uh, a sense of obedience that is, um, that is motivated by love because you're such a great God and so caring of us. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, Exodus 24 at verse 1. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Thus far the reading of God's word may be blessed to our hearts and lives this evening. Beloved congregation of hope and everyone listening uh, tonight, uh, if you think about Thanksgiving and uh, Christmas, what makes them oftentimes either a great heartache or a real incredible blessing is whether or not we get to eat good food in the presence of people we love and are loved by, people with whom we have relationships of peace, delight, mutual encouragement, and being able to share a meal is actually one of the 
greatest privileges in the Bible when people share meals together. It's also one of, just one of the greatest things that we as human beings can enjoy in this world. We're hungry, we need to eat, and to have good food with people we love is incredible. That said, if there's discord or there's enmity, animosity, grudges being held, those meals are actually sources of tremendous frustration then, maybe even intimidation. And we no longer look forward to Thanksgiving or Christmas or spending time with family. We'd rather just not go do it or we smile and nod and go through the motions of it. But there's something broken in relationships and so it's hard to go through that. What we notice in this passage is Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, <laughs> interesting characters up there, and 70 elders are sitting down in the presence of God, catch this, with no animosity, in peace. And they're eating a meal, and it's glorious. God's hand is not against them. He's not their enemy. His holiness has not broken out against them. And it's a great picture of what life is going to be like at the wedding supper of the Lamb and what heaven will be like, what we're all longing for, to sit down and be satisfied with good food in the presence of God who loves us and cares for us. We might just call it being home, you could argue. And as we walk through this, I want to uh, notice what's going on in this covenant ratification ceremony. I want us to kind of build up to how can we have this fellowship with God? Because this fellowship they enjoyed came on the heels of the covenant, on the covenant ratification ceremony. After the covenant was all enacted and put forth, then they go enjoy this meal. I think there's a building up toward it and there's steps toward it. So we're going to be asking at the end, how can we enjoy this sweet, fellowship with God. But first I want us to kind of walk through just by way of introduction or the first point, however you want to look at it, um, some ancient Near Eastern covenants and how this parallels uh, with them. Because what's interesting about Exodus 20 through 24 is that it parallels ancient Near Eastern treaties and how they worked. So when the Israelites, when the Lord walked the Israelites through this, they'd have been like, oh yeah, we're familiar with this. This is how this works. A country or a king conquers and subdues an inferior called the vassal. And then the suzerain, the superior, gives terms of a covenant, lays out what this relationship is going to look like, and the inferior sign up for it, kind of whether they like to or not, <laughs> and off they go. That was familiar in the days of Israel, and it's uh, interesting, the structure of Exodus 20 through 24, let's just walk through it. First of all, these ancient Near Eastern treaties actually began with the preamble, which is oftentimes historically, the conquering king or nation called the suzerain, or let's just call them the superior, giving just a brief history of how they came to conquer the, the, the nation, how they came to conquer the inferior. Here's what happened. We went to war with you, we fought these different battles, and we became victorious. Now, this preamble is actually in Exodus, Exodus 20. I am the Lord your God, verse 2, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Very quick preamble, very quick history. Now, we could go all the way back to Exodus, but the Israelites already know it. That's the introduction to it. How did we get here at Mount Sinai? I brought you out of the land of Egypt through the blood of the Lamb. You're my people. I own you. What's also interesting about these ancient Near Eastern treaties is they would have regulations. So the sovereign, 
the superior would tell the inferior how they are supposed to operate underneath their new authority. What do they need to do as far as obedience goes in the land that's now governed by a different nation? And these, again, regulations for Israel are found from Exodus 20, verse 3, the first commandment, all the way through Exodus 23, verse 19. Just regulations, case laws, civil laws, how the Israelites are supposed to conduct themselves in relationship to the Lord who had conquered them as it were, saved them, brought them out, and is now making of them a nation. Something else that's found in ancient Near Eastern trees is kind of a role of blessings and curses. We would call them covenant blessings and covenant curses, or what's going to happen if the inferior rebels and doesn't obey? What's that going to look like? And this is actually found at the end of chapter uh, 23, where the Lord talks about that. We noticed that uh, a couple weeks ago. But these covenants, they spell out what the inferior can expect if they violate the terms of the covenant. Okay, if we don't fulfill the requirements, the obligations, how are you going to treat us? What can we expect you're going to do? And for the most part, it would be, well, we're just going to come and destroy you. We're going to do with you whatever we want to do with you. And then these covenants had a ratification ceremony, which is the official document signing, I guess you could put it. Uh, it's composed of the reading of the law. So if you look at verse three, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. Now that's kind of like Moses giving them the rough draft. He hasn't written it down yet. He starts writing it down in verse four, but in verse three, he's coming down there to kind of introduce this to them. Here's everything the Lord told you all. What do you all think of it? And they tell him, hey, we're in. Verse seven he says, then Moses took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. Now that's after he wrote it. So verse three, he kind of gives them an introduction to it. He writes it down in verse four. The people sign up for it, the rough draft copy. Then he writes it down, which is now codifying this covenant. He reads it again to the people. And then officially they say, yes, we are in. So these covenants would take a commitment from the inferior. Now, again, a lot of times the inferior didn't have a choice. You just sign up for this. And we see this from the people, verses four and seven. All the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then verse seven, the official one, they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And John McKay, in his commentary on Exodus, put it this way. He, it was customary when overlords entered into treaties with their vassals or their inferiors for there to be a formal authoritative text detailing what was involved in the agreement. Once the terms had been set out and accepted, they were written down and not subject to further change. That is what Moses as the covenant mediator does here. Now we're probably familiar with this. If we go get a bank, a loan from the bank for a car, we may work out the terms over the phone, but eventually there comes the signing, right? The bank says, here's how much money we're giving you. Here's what the payback looks like. Here's what we're going to take from you if you don't pay us some sort of collateral. And we say, yes, we'll sign up for this. We'll pay our monthly fee until the balance for the car is all paid off. So it is with the covenant. Now, just as a note, Moses wrote this down. And that's really scripture being uh, written. The Holy Spirit is working in him to write these things down. So he writes them down and we've got uh, at least a bit of the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible uh, being written down by Moses. 
Another part of the covenant ratification ceremony where it's made official is, so the reading of the law, the commitment from the inferior, and then the covenant sealed with blood, or some way to seal this covenant. And if you look at verses four through eight, we see that Moses rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So Moses made an altar. All 12 tribes are represented there at that altar with the pillars. Two kinds of sacrifices were offered. A burnt offering, which has to do with atonement for sin, and a peace offering, a fellowship offering, saying, hey, this is an offering that has to do with a relationship that has been restored or that is at peace now on account of the sacrifice. And half the blood was thrown at the altar and half the blood was thrown at the people. Now, we're not given any commentary on what this meant. We're told basically virtually nothing, which tells us the Israelites knew what it meant, and we're having to kind of dig around to see what this means. But if we look at ancient treaties, and if we look at Genesis 15, where God made, cut a covenant with Abraham, and they cut birds and animals and split them, and God walked through the middle of them in the smoking fire pot while Abraham was in a deep sleep, we know a few things regarding what this blood meant. The blood was a symbol that breaking the covenant would result in death. Just as the animals were killed, so would happen to the one who broke the covenant. The blood was a sign of that. So it was a blessing, as we'll see in a moment. It was also a very solemn warning. So be to me if I fail in this covenant. The blood was thrown on the people, which proclaimed that if any of them failed to obey the covenant requirements, they would be destroyed. So if they broke any of the Ten Commandments in thought, word, or deed, they would be utterly and completely wiped out. And this brings up a great question. How long do you think it took them to become covenant breakers? 30 seconds? Two or three minutes? I mean, certainly by the time we get to the golden calf incident, we've got the whole nation that's covenant breakers, right? But probably not very long until every one of them were covenant breakers. Because in case they thought they had kept the law, Jesus made it very clear, even thoughts, motives, all of that breaks any one of the Ten Commandments. And here's where the ancient treaties stop and where this covenant stands out. In ancient treaties, there were not provisions for grace and mercy from the superior if the inferiors failed. There was do this or you're going to pay. Do this and this will be the punishment. Here's the consequences, which is fair. It's part of justice. But in this covenant, we've got notice half of the blood he threw against the altar, verse 6. Blood on the altar has to do with forgiveness, with atonement being made. And at the very start of this covenant, God is declaring with his people that I've made atonement for you for us to have a relationship. There is blood on that altar. That is the basis of our relationship. And ancient treaties did not bind the superiors to treat the inferiors with grace in the event of a failure. Superiors are bound to almost nothing. They write the agreement. But here, God is binding himself to his people. Now, this is fascinating, beloved. This is tremendously gracious. God is binding himself to forgive his people 
through the blood. Incredible how this differs from the average treaty. The covenant ceremony ended with Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders going up the mountain to enjoy a meal with God. And the passage says something rather stark. This is how the whole ceremony ends. Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, the 70 elders of Israel, they go up, they saw the God of Israel. There, were, there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand, of the chief men of the people of Israel, he did not lay his hand against them. They beheld God and ate and drank. Now, we're not told what they saw of God, but just that they saw God. We're told what was under God's feet, but the language used suggests that it's very similar to kind of how Ezekiel put it when he was caught up. If you notice the language, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. No one's really sure exactly what is being described here by Moses, which is typical for people who've actually been in the presence of God and near to him trying to describe what it's like. The words just fail and they end up using a lot of language like like or as it were, or I saw something that had the general appearance of. Very confusing, it's hard to describe it because God is so incredibly great. But what's particularly amazing about this passage that stands out is God did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel because they came covered in the blood and through the mediator, Moses. They had a mediator there who covered them in blood. Notice the passage, notice what the Holy Spirit's saying here. God did not put out his hand against them, meaning what? He should have, unless something had happened. This defies all expectations. How did they live and have a meal in God's, how did they see God and live and eat and drink in his presence without dying? He did not put his hand out against them. They were covered in blood. The mediator, Moses, is there. Now, I want us to walk through this and start thinking about how is it that we in the new covenant, this is thousands of years ago in the old covenant, how can we in the new covenant enjoy this incredible fellowship, this meal with God, as it were? What does this look like? Well, first, I want to draw attention to something. Unlike the old covenant where nearness to God was often a function of the role you had in Israel, so priests could be nearer to God as it were, the, the high priest going into the Holy of Holies. In the new covenant, nearness to God and fellowship with God have nothing to do with our role in the church. Every single believer, regardless of status in the church or any role in the church, can have this nearness with God and fellowship with God. Some people like to think that all oh, pastors or you know, clergymen who, who do this for a living, they must be able to be much nearer to God than, than all the rest of ordinary Christians. Just not the case, beloved. Not in the new covenant. Everyone has this incredible access and, this, and can have this nearness to God and fellowship with God. That's something that is certainly more pronounced in the, in the new covenant, if not brand new entirely. The second thing I want to point out is that this nearness comes from being committed to following Jesus in obedience. Before they could go up and enjoy this meal, they had to commit to what? Doing the covenant, being in the covenant. Everything God asks us to do, we're in with. 
let me, let me put that in new covenant language. We're going to follow Jesus. We're going to follow God. We're going to do what he asks us to do, and we're going to follow him. Now, there are professing Christians who lack a nearness with God and fellowship with God, and I'm sure we could all raise our hand and say, I've been one, or maybe I are one right now, because we have become less committed to following the Lord in obedience. And throughout the course of our life, through events or whatever the case may be, we've said, Lord, I will follow you regarding these commandments, but on this commandment and this particular application of it, I'm out. And you're just going to have to bear with me in this, and I want to continue to imbibe it and delight myself in it and not put you above all and not put my neighbor as myself, but I'm just going to serve me in this area of my life. And one thing that will noticeably happen is fellowship with God will start to be strangled. And the sweetness and the nearness of God and his presence will start to draw away. And we will find ourselves oftentimes lacking assurance, which, is, uh, which completely destroys fellowship. And we'll find ourselves in an island kind of on a desert, if that's the case. And so it's worth asking if we are committed to following Jesus Christ in obedience as our Lord. If we're, along with the Israelites, saying in our relationship with God, you have saved me, you brought me out of the land of slavery to sin, to my flesh, to the world, to Satan, you brought me into this incredible kingdom of light, the kingdom of your son, and I am committed to doing everything that you've asked me to do. Because if in our hearts we're not committed to this, and we'll, get to, we'll work this out in just a moment. I realize none of us are perfect, but if in our hearts we're not committed to obedience, then fellowship with God is going to be something that we find just near impossible. It's not, we're not going to, it's not going to be there. So are we committed to obedience? The third thing as far as uh, how can we enjoy this fellowship is in order to enjoy the sweet fellowship with God, we need to be those who are trusting in the blood of Jesus to fulfill the obligations of the covenant. The author of Hebrews actually picks up Exodus 24, 8 and quotes it. I want to read a passage out of Hebrews 9, beginning at verse 18. Not even the first covenant, speaking of the, this covenant right here in Exodus 24, was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you, which is a quote directly from Exodus 24, 8. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And no forgiveness of sins equals no fellowship. Let me paraphrase Hebrews 9. The entire relationship between God and his people is a relationship that is just covered, drowned in, sprinkled with, doused in blood. All of the Old Testament stuff that Moses had to sprinkle and cover in blood that the author of Hebrews talks about and is detailed later in Exodus and Leviticus is a clear testimony to the fact that in order to have fellowship with God and a relationship with God means there needs to be blood spilt. The blood is thrown on the altar. That's the blood of atonement, the blood of forgiveness. The blood is thrown on the people, symbolizing that there's blood 
to cover their sins as well. If we're going to enjoy sweet fellowship with God, we need to be those who are trusting in the blood of Jesus uh, to fulfill the obligations of the covenant. I don't know if you've ever had this. I've gone through many dry times in my own Christian life. I'm sure uh, many of us here have as well and met with plenty of believers uh, who have and tried to help them through it. And one of the things that is characteristic of me uh, when I go through these dry times is that I'll, I'll be stuck in a sin or I'll blow it in some way that's, that is not characteristic of the ways I normally sin. And in the midst of that, I'll continue to beat myself up. And I've seen other believers just beat themselves up. How could I do this? Oh, I can't believe I, I've done this. And fellowship with God starts falling away and he becomes more and more distant as because I and other believers are more and more drawn into ourselves, beating ourselves up sometimes in pride, thinking, how could I do this? And what's being trusted in there? Our obedience to fulfill the obligations of the covenant and get in fellowship with God, rather than Jesus' blood as the fulfillment of all the obligations of the covenant. And that's why we have fellowship with God. And sometimes it's one of those aha, dumb moments. How could I miss that? How could we miss that? But the reason God loved the Israelites isn't because they said, hey, we're committed. And he thought, oh, these guys are going to be perfect. <laughs> they didn't have this sweet fellowship and God didn't let them enjoy this sweet fellowship because God thought, you know, you know, Nadab and Abihu, these guys are really going to pull it off. They're going to obey. No, right? It's almost right. It's funny because of what happens in just a little bit here. Why did God have this sweet fellowship with them? Why did he give them that blessing? Because they came in the blood. They came through the blood of Jesus Christ, ultimately. And that's how we can have this incredible fellowship. So let me ask you, as I've been asking myself this too this past week, have we forgotten why it is that we're accepted by God and can have fellowship with him? Because if we've forgotten that, then what we can often end up doing is just wallowing in self-pity, thinking, oh, I can't believe I did this. God is a thousand miles away because in our pride or for some reason, we won't just cling to Jesus. Look, beloved, in Christ, we have fellowship with God. His blood is what gives us a relationship with God and fellowship with God. His obedience has secured our relationship with God, not ours. And then secondly, when we sin, what do we do with that? This is a question we often ask people when they come do profession of faith interviews, especially uh, younger believers. Uh, when you sin, how do you work through it? Do you beat yourself up? Do you rest your mind and, oh, I'll try not to do this again and that's good enough? Or do you go to the Lord and ask forgiveness? And do you rest yourself in the cleansing blood of Jesus for the thousandth time or the millionth time? because that's the life of fellowship with God, beloved. A life which says, Lord, I've sinned again, again, again. Heartbreaking. Lord, I've blown it again. Thank you for the blood of Jesus, your son. Thank you that I can have fellowship with you on account of his sacrifice and his work. Thank you. Beloved, that brings us right in. Now we can have fellowship and nearness with God. Because God exalts those who are humble. But what does he do when we're so proud? We say, Lord, I shouldn't need Jesus' blood anymore. I should be able to do this on my own. Well, he brings us down until we finally get it. 
Yeah, there will never come a day when I don't need the blood of Jesus to have fellowship with God. There will never come that day in this life, ever, beloved. In heaven, we'll be perfect. Here, not going to happen. And so in order to have fellowship, God, we need to be those who are clinging to the blood of Jesus, his son. Not just at the altar to save us, but sprinkled on us that continually washes over our sins. And the fourth aspect of enjoying this tremendous fellowship with God is fellowship with God is enjoyed par partially in the Lord's Supper and fully at the wedding supper of the Lamb. I want to highlight that just briefly here. So the Lord's Supper is a celebration of our fellowship with God that is based on the blood of Jesus. Jesus said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. It's taught covenantal language there. He's saying, look, I'm the one that all these covenants pointed to. It's my blood that has caused forgiveness of sins to be spilled over every believer backwards and forwards in time. And so when we come to the Lord's table, you know, once a month here at Hope, uh, what we're declaring is that hey, we have this incredible fellowship with God and we're enjoying fellowship with God. Now our meal's pretty small, right? We got a teeny piece of bread and we got like a, a, a half a shot of wine or grape juice or whatever the case may be, depending on whichever church we're at. But it's a meal where we are celebrating our peace with God. And God, though we are covenant breakers, does not come out in anger and wrath against any of us. Why? Because we've got a mediator who has covered us in blood. And that's what we're celebrating when we come to the Lord's table. Now, it's interesting. The Lord's Supper is a partial fulfillment of this. Just like the meal that they had on the mountain was partial fulfillment. How do we know it's only partial? Because the meal ended. <laughs> they ate and had a meal before God. Moses goes up, they go back down. Okay, it's over. Well, that was fun while it lasted. And the Lord's Supper is like that too. Oh, this is great. I'm reminded that I'm a sinner. That's, that's actually really good to admit. And I'm reminded that it's okay to be a sinner because Jesus is a savior who forgives sinners and his obedience is credited to the sinner's account. And on the basis of Jesus, I am fully accepted by God. Yes, that's awesome. Let's eat, let's celebrate, let's, let's remember that. And then it ends and we get up and we go home and we go through life and a month later we do it again. There's going to come a supper that will never end. The wedding supper of the Lamb, Revelation 19.9, blessed is the one who's invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Why so blessed? Because it's this incredible feast. It's eating this meal. Who knows how long this supper will last, but it, it, it's going to spill over. It's our entrance right into forever in the very presence of God, satisfied in Him. And it begins with eating a meal with other believers and with God. That's what this on the mountain points to in Exodus 24. It's what the Lord's Supper points to. That's what we're all waiting for, this incredible wedding supper of the Lamb, this great feast that is soon to come. And one more thing, this fellowship is experienced with other believers. On the mountain, it's not Moses by himself. On the mountain, Nadab and Abihu, 70 elders representing the people. This is a community thing. In the Lord's Supper, which is a great reminder, I have peace with God. I can eat and drink in his presence with his people. It's something we do together. It's not like something we take at home in our prayer closet just outside of our bedroom when we're doing morning devotions. It's something given to the church. We do this together. And the wedding supper of the Lamb will be filled 
with other believers alongside of us in God's presence. I don't want to do too much with this other than to say that the most incredible moments in redemptive history have taken place when God meets his people, plural people. People gathered together. And in heaven, this incredible event will take place, not in, with us being in some isolated chambers where it's just us and God ourselves, but all of us, the thronging worshipers assembled in his presence, praising him. Beloved, just as an encouragement, if we want this sweet fellowship with God, it will so often happen in conversation with other believers, in worship with other believers, at the Lord's Supper with other believers, where we are reminded, I am not in this all by myself. And this God is incredible. He saves not just me, but all these people around me by the blood of his son. Now that's a meal I wanna be at. That's a meal every believer wants to be at. And that's the meal that we're all heading toward when we get to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Let's pray.